Well, it's wonderful to be here this morning with you and thinking through our larger theme of Christ from beginning to end as we work from creation ultimately to the new creation through the Old Testament to the glorious coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, my task the, in this session here is to think through uh, Moses, but Moses is going to be linked with the nation of Israel and with what we'll call, from our perspective now that Christ has come, the Old Covenant. Uh, wouldn't have been called Old in the Old Testament until Christ comes, but uh, sometimes it's called uh, Israel's Covenant or the Mosaic Covenant, and then you can see the covenant's relationship with Moses. So we'll be unpacking these areas. How does this contribute in the unfolding plan of God to setting the building blocks, to giving us the categories, the anticipation, the promises that now come in Christ? Connecting Genesis 12, if you have your Bibles there, with Exodus 19. I'm just going to read this to get us going. Connecting Abraham, then with description of Israel. So we read and we looked at, Trent looked at Abraham, and we find this initial call of Abraham in Genesis 12:1. The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, your father's household, go to the land I will show you. And here becomes the great promises. I will make you into a great nation. So remember that. The word here speaks of almost an international community, a world people, a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You'll be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. Now flip over to Exodus 19. There's a lot of description of the nation of Israel and God's covenant people. This is a very important description. It's important not only for what Israel is, it's also a description that eventually gets picked up and applied to the church. So we won't be there just yet. But we read in Exodus 19, the opening verses, the first six verses, in the third month, after the Israelites left Egypt, on the very day they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. So they're at Mount Sinai. Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob, what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Really speaking of the exodus and the deliverance. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, same language that's given to Abraham. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. And then, of course, as Exodus unfolds, they will then receive the Ten Commandments. They will enter into covenant relationship in Exodus 24, and it then ensues from there. Well, keep those thoughts in your mind connecting Abraham with Israel, with Moses, and what comes. I want to think, though, before we look at this, of thinking of the word promise. The word promise is a beautiful word, or at least it should be, to say as humans when we make promises to one another. I promise. You're not just simply saying words hopefully. But ultimately, when you speak of promises, sometimes people call these in a fancy way speech acts, right? You're saying speech, but you're doing some kind of action by it. When you say, I promise, you're tying those words to you, to the person. They're uniting a person's with, person with their character. When you say, I promise, you're going to say, you're really saying, I will do it, right? 
I will be faithful to my words. I'll fulfill my pledge. You can trust me. Right? That's really what's going on with promises. Think of a marriage. Marriage is a covenant relationship. Right? Man and a woman stand before God in front of the people of God at the church and they make promises to one another and by those very words they're entrusting themselves, they're giving themselves to one another and they're entering into a new relationship. Promises, right? One of my favorite movies is The Lord of the Rings. It's been a while now since it came out. Every Christmas was a delight to have the next version of it. Well, in The Fellowship of the Ring, you remember Sam's loyalty to Frodo. Frodo's about to go off, and Sam says, you can't go off without me. He says, I made a promise, and a promise is a promise. And so we know of the loyalty of a friend. And that's why promises, because they tie our words to people when promises are broken. That's why they're so hurtful. A person has shown themselves to be untrustworthy. We can see this in marriages. We can see this in friendships. You know, the old adage... Kids will say, you know, sticks and stones will break my bones, but names will never hurt me and words will never hurt me. Well, that's just not true. Uh, Words do hurt deeply because ultimately they are tied to usually a breaking of promises. But when promises are kept, trust then takes place, uh, relationships grow, confidence then is there, assurance and rest is found And when promises aren't there and aren't kept, of course, that is the opposite, right? Now, when you think of how precious promises are in terms of human relationships, think of it when it comes to God. The God of the Bible, right, the triune God from all eternity has existed. We saw last night, creates the world. He had a plan and he created the world. And what is unique about the God of Scripture is he just didn't create, do nothing with it. He became the covenant God, right? He made promises. He keeps his promises. He is the God who remains true to his word. The author of Hebrews says in chapter 6 that there's no higher authority that God can swear by. When he makes promises, he swears by himself because he is completely trustworthy. He's powerful enough to bring about his word. He has all authority, and he has a character to bring about as well, unlike us. God keeps his promises, right? In Scripture, God's promises are always tied to covenants. In Scripture, God's promises are tied to covenants that unfold from creation, through Noah, through Abraham, through Israel, through David, ultimately to Christ, right? covenants in this way not only teaches of who God is, right? One of the beautiful things of the covenants is it reminds us of how God is the promise maker and promise keeper. But also through these covenants, the very revelation of God and his plan is disclosed to us on the stage of human history. So the covenants become, in truth, the whole backbone, right? Uh, The roadmap of God's unfolding plan. And that's why If we are to understand how the whole Bible speaks of Christ and leads to all of his promises, Paul will say, in Christ, all of God's promises are yes and amen. Well, how does that happen? Well, we've got to trace out those covenants to see how all of this takes place. The covenants reveal a story. They're not just window dressing. They're not just sort of randomly thrown together. They're step by step unfolding a story. They're telling us who God is. They're telling us who we are. They're telling us what our problem is. They're showing us in step-by-step shadow to then full light. They're showing us how God's going to solve the problem, how he's going to keep his promise. Starting in creation and then working through the covenants, we see how all of God's promises lead us to Christ. And when we do this, we not only see how the whole Bible fits together, but we learn to trust God more, right? If you want to grow in your confidence of God's promises, then you have to know the whole Bible. And you have to meditate upon that. You have to go back to it over and over again. Our Christian lives are bound up with knowing how God's word fits together. And as we've been tracing out these covenants, we have been following sort of looking at the covenants in their context, seeing how they build, right? Because they are building on one another. 
and seeing how they ultimately reach their fulfillment in Christ. And so far now we have walked from creation to Noah, through Abraham, and now we come to the nation of Israel and to Moses and all that's going on there and much of the Old Testament data. You think of Adam only shows up, you know, in the first few chapters and Noah's only got three chapters devoted to him. And Abraham, from 12 through 50, you have sort of the patriarchs, but most of the Old Testament, Exodus, Leviticus, all the way through Deuteronomy, all the history is dealing with the Old Covenant, the nation of Israel. And we have to then think through how it contributes to the overall story. Now, when we get to the nation of Israel, just a quick reminder here, and this sort of ties in our other sessions together, Israel will show up in Exodus. But, of course, Exodus is built on Genesis, right? And so God begins his plan in creation. He creates the world. He makes us in his image. We talked about Adam last night as a unique covenant head, Uh, We saw that uh, the creation covenant is foundational to so much that comes through the Bible, rest and temple and land and marriage and kingdom and all of these areas. Yet everything goes wrong in Genesis 3, which sets us up for God now, by grace, bringing about his promise, deciding to save. Genesis 3.15, that enigmatic promise, that uh, shadowy kind of promise. We know that God will not let the human race ultimately be brought to destruction. He will continue. Even Adam's naming of Eve, you will be the mother of all living, right? Is already, in some sense, Adam grabbing a hold of that promise. There will be a human race. God will keep his promises to to pass and restore us. Yet he will do so through a human, right? Through one who comes from the human race. And we don't know how it all is going to work out, but as we go to Noah, we know it's going to come through him. It looks like the human race, God will keep his promise that the human race will survive, but it gets pretty close, right? Everyone's wiped out except one family. Yet God's promise preserves him by grace, takes him safely through the ark. He will be the means by which God will bring a restoration, reverse the effects of Genesis 3, turn away the curse, bring us back to God, uh, make a new creation. I mean, all of that gets anticipated. And that's why Abraham, as we heard last time, is so important. He's set in the context of Genesis 12, but Genesis 1 to 11 precedes him. Through Abraham, chosen by grace. He was not a righteous man in and of himself. He was chosen by grace, but he's the means We see this in Genesis 12. He's the means by which salvation will come to the world. Abraham, in the story of Scripture, is one of the most important figures, isn't he? Through him, salvation comes to the world. He will have a great name, a great nation, and of course the nation of Israel will be part of the fulfillment of that promise, right? They will come from him. We've already seen uh, tensions within the covenants. God will, thankfully, act in grace. He will initiate. He will keep his word. Genesis 15 was a beautiful picture of that. Unless God saves unilaterally, right, uh, we have no hope. Part of the message of Scripture is that Adam fails. Noah fails and sins. He's not righteous in and of himself. Even Abraham has a righteousness outside of himself. That's certainly going to be true of the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel will be one example through Scripture of disobedience after disobedience after disobedience. Yet they play an important role. Through them, through an offspring of the human race, through an offspring of Adam, Abraham, through an offspring of the nation of Israel, God will provide. And you have a hint of that, as we saw in Genesis 22. Isaac is the promised one, but he's not the one who's going to bring salvation. It's going to come through him, but there must be one outside of him. That's the importance of that lamb outside of Isaac. The Lord will provide, but who will this be? It'll come from him, but who is this going to be? And you have all of the Abrahamic covenant driving us forward. Well, now we come to Israel and Moses and the old covenant. And we're going to look at this in a couple of steps here by first sort of putting it in the context, showing, as we've already read Genesis 12 and Exodus 19, the, the continuity between Abraham 
And Israel, here are promises being realized, yet even the nation of Israel, if we see how they're described, aren't just the offspring of Abraham, that's true, but they are ultimately a new Adam. They are taking Adam's role. The nation of Israel is to be a model nation to the world. They'll be given land, they'll be given a place, they are to live in covenant relationship with God and one another, they are to show what image bearers are all about. We'll see that. We'll see how the old covenant has all kinds of hints in it, development in it from the previous covenants that will get picked up later in Scripture, in the Davidic covenant and the prophets, and ultimately lead us to Christ. So let's look at first the old covenant and then Moses in light of Abraham and ultimately back to Adam, right? We read, if you go to Exodus chapter 3, we'll look just at a few passages that will connect this covenant with Israel back previously. The first thing you have to say about the old covenant in the nation of Israel is that they are a people from Abraham, and that goes very, very clear in Scripture. Exodus 3, 6. Then he said, I am the God of your father. Right? So the Lord is speaking to Moses. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Right? So the nation of Israel is tied to the Abrahamic promise. Right? You go back to chapter 2, verse 24. Why is it that God then responds after 400 years? He's already anticipated. He's told Abraham that the people from him will be in bondage 400 years and he will deliver him. Well, now God is going to make good on that promise. And so we read in Exodus 2, 24, God heard their groaning, the nation of Israel. He remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. So he then acts on their behalf, right? The first thing we have to say about the nation of Israel and all that transpires with that nation is that this covenant is built off the Abrahamic, and that should be quite clear. Just as Abraham was chosen by grace, so this nation is chosen by grace as well. It's fulfilling the promise, but think of, remember, Deuteronomy 7. When God speaks to the nation of Israel, he says, I didn't choose you because you were better or larger or more beautiful than the other nations. I chose you by grace, tied to my promise to Abraham, but his promise to Abraham is tied to grace as well, so that in all of God's actions, he acts in initiative to save, and that's true of us as well. Anyone who is a Christian is saved by God's sovereign grace, right? By grace we have been saved. And that just works through these entire covenants. We also see in the Old Covenant that Israel now is a nation. So Abraham will have an offspring that will lead to a holy nation. Well, this is now the holy nation that comes. This nation will have blessing to all nations. But the first thing to see is that Israel is the nation that was promised ultimately to Abraham. So out of Isaac and out of Jacob and out of the 12 tribes, the nation of Israel is formed. And in Exodus 19, we read that they are a kingdom of priests. That language is very important, right? We said last night that Adam in the garden, the word priest isn't used, but there's vocabulary of him working in the garden and acting in the garden that is applied later to priests. Priests in Scripture, we mostly associate with the Levitical priests. We'll come to that just in a moment with the Old Covenant. Mostly with the Levitical priests, we assume we associate with those priests sacrifice for sins, and that's exactly right. But priest is broader than just that. Priest, ultimately, in Genesis 2, and I think here, why are they a kingdom of priests? Not everybody in Israel functions as a Levitical priest. So kingdom of priests has to then speak of their role as a nation, as a covenant people. They are to be ones who live in the presence of God. That's at the heart of priesthood. So the priest dwells in the presence of God. And in this, I would argue here that the nation of Israel is picking up an Adam role. He's picking up in some sense what we were supposed to be in the first place. 
We were to be a people as image bearers in relation to God who lived in the presence of God, who expanded the borders of Eden to the uttermost parts of the earth. Adam didn't do that. Noah didn't do that. But God chooses through Abraham to this nation to be this kingdom of priests. In Abraham, the sign of circumcision was given. Circumcision was a priestly sign right, in the ancient Near East. Right? It was a sign that the people were fully devoted and given over to the Lord. They were holy unto the Lord. The problem with the nation of Israel, for the most part, not every single person in that nation, but for the problem of the nation of Israel, for the most part, is the outward sign didn't match an inward reality. Right? And of course, we have the anticipation that God will transform an entire people and make those entire people his priests, his kingdom of priests. And of course, that is what happens ultimately in Christ and the church. That's why this passage gets applied in 1 Peter chapter 2. They are to be a holy nation, right? And so they are the ones who in covenant relationship function in a twofold way. Through Israel, eventually Messiah will come, right? And that's very clear all the way from Genesis 3 15. Yet the nation of Israel as this kingdom of priests is supposed to be a model nation to the world as well. They are given an inheritance, they are given a land. Part of the old covenant at this point in time of redemptive history is to separate Israel from the nations. Now, there is the odd time that some Gentiles come into the old covenant. Rahab is an example of this and Ruth is an example of this, but it's pretty rare. If Gentiles under this covenant want to be those who are in right relation to God, they have to become Jews. Right? They have to come under this covenant. Because at this point in time, this covenant is distinguishing the nation from the world. That's part of the reason for why Joshua removes people from the land. The other reason is judgment against sin. But he removes people from the land. All of the food laws. You read Leviticus and you wonder, why all these food laws? And why, uh, you know, all of these uh, clean, unclean? Well, there's probably many things you could say. It's teaching them about holiness. It's teaching them that in every aspect of their life, they're to think in terms of holy and unholy and sin and so on before God. But it's also a way that separates them from the nations. It's pretty hard to have dinner with your Gentile neighbor if they're around if you're not eating the same meal. Right? And so those food laws distinguish people. That's why eventually in Acts 10, Peter gets that vision from heaven, remember, in the context of Cornelius. And God says, I've declared all foods clean now that Christ has come, and it's applied to the bringing in of the Gentiles. You say, well, how do you move from food laws to Gentiles? Well, that's how you do it. Uh, the, nation, the nation of Israel under this covenant, God purposely separated the nation from the nations. Now, they were going to bring blessing to the nations, but for this point in time, they were to be a holy, model, theocratic people. Right? You see this a little bit in Ezra as well. Ezra wouldn't do well with many counselors today. <laughs> uh, they come back out of Babylon. And what happened in those 70 years? They took foreign wives. So what does Ezra say? Get rid of them. You think, what? <laughs> Ezra, you're blowing the sanctity of marriage here. Well, Ezra's saying, you have violated the covenant, right? You are to obey God. You're not to take foreign wives. And so he says, get rid of them. I mean, this is part of the separation notion of this old covenant. They are to be a paradigm of rule. They are to really show to the world what it means to be rightly related to God, rightly related to one another, what it means to be an image bearer, what we were supposed to be in the first place. Now, we all know they didn't do the greatest job, right? And eventually there will be, and of course, this is part of the story, Israel failed. Israel failed in her kingdom of priest's work, in her role to be a model to the nations. She failed in her Adamic role. And there will come one who will fulfill that role, who will be a better Israelite, a true Israelite. And all of that will get picked up, obviously, through the king and to Christ. Right? Now, it's also important if you turn to Exodus 4 to see a description of this nation. This nation has a particular relationship to the Lord. 
And the language here, the description here is very, very important here, but also across the Bible. We read in Exodus 4, 22 and 23. So this is in the context where God is instructing Moses, you go in and tell Pharaoh, my people are coming out. And how does he describe his people in verse 22 of chapter 4? Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so they may worship me. But you refuse to let go, so I will kill your firstborn son. And of course, the firstborn son gets picked up then in the Passover, the killing of the Passover. Now, this language here of son, this is not, well, nothing in the Bible is accidental. But here is a very, very deliberate language, right? If you were to say, what's the relationship of the nation of Israel to God? The Lord, the covenant Lord is presented here as father to Israel as son. That father-son relationship is not something that is minor. Son in scripture means a number of things, right? You can have a biological son. There's obviously a biological sense. But in this sense here, it's not so much biological. It is representational, right? Son here means for Israel to be the son of God, they are to represent God. That's what they're, I just described in terms of the covenant. They are to be a model to the nations. They are to be God's son in that they bring his rule to the land, that they are to represent him as the people of God, right? Son looks back to Adam ultimately. You say, well, where in Genesis 1 to 2, 3, 4, 5 is the word son used? Well, it's used in relation to Adam's offspring, but it's not in relation to, to, to Adam. But he's image, he's likeness. But later on in Luke chapter 3, in Jesus' genealogy that traces it all the way through Adam, Adam is described at the end of that genealogy as the son of God. What's it doing there? Well, it's picking up the fact that son means representative. Image means representative. And as you trace this out through the canon, image and sonship get ultimately linked together. Now, you have to be very careful how you trace it out because there's a strong redemptive theme. We're image. All people are image of God. Yet in sin, they're not all sons of God in the redemptive sense. Yet God makes sons. He makes the nation of Israel. Through Israel, he will bring the king, who we'll see in the next uh, talk by Trent that the Israelite, the Davidic king, is the son of God. Individual to, in some sense, a representative of the entire nation. And of course, as you barrel along into the New Testament, who is the Lord Jesus? Well, he is the son of God. God, right? That's not, that's how the Old Testament will set you up for who this Jesus is. Yet, by the time you get to Jesus in the New Testament, Son of God is now starting to blow all the categories, right? This is John 1, where he's described word or son. This son isn't just a human son like Israel or the king or even uh, the Messianic figure. He will be the seed of the woman, but he also is eternal son. And then you have a father-son relationship That's been there from all eternity that will then show itself in Christ taking on our humanity and restoring us. We'll see this afternoon in Hebrews 2. What does the Lord Jesus in taking on our image and sonship do? He restores us to sons. We are the adopted, but the adoption is because the true son has become son for us. But all of that is being built off of this Old Testament understanding. And Israel is called to be obedient, right? We've seen that obedience theme run through the entire canon so far, right? The Old Covenant, probably the best of any of them, shows the strong emphasis on obedience, right? You can't think of the Old Covenant without both the curses of the covenant and the blessings of the covenant. If you disobey, you are cursed. And eventually, in history, Israel is cursed by being booted out of the land, Sounds a lot like Adam. <laughs> Adam was in a garden, and when he disobeyed, he got booted out, right? 
There's also the blessings of the covenant, but Israel is called to obey, but they don't. And of course, that's going to create further tension. God will work through the human race. He demands because he is the God of the universe. He is the moral standard of the universe. He demands from all image bearers perfect obedience. But where is it? It's not in Adam. It's not in Noah. It's not in Abraham. It's not certainly in Israel. And it will not be in the Davidic kings. It will ultimately come in one who is truly obedient, the perfect covenant partner, the one who obeys for us. And of course, that's how it comes into Christ's life and death and resurrection for us on our behalf, right? Our justification before God is that not only is our sin forgiven in the cross, but we have a righteous standing because of the obedience of the true Israelite, the true greater David, the true greater Adam. Right? And that's how these are beginning to develop. So Israel's role is very, very important to see in their relation to the Abrahamic covenant, relation to Adam. They are a new Adam. They are from Abraham. They are the hope of the world. Right? Through them, salvation will come to the world. Yet tension, failure, disobedience, and so on. Now, there's a couple other features that we want to just think through for a moment as we sort of think of the role of this whole covenant and then Moses in the plan of God. Right? I've tried to so far just sort of say, here's how the nation of Israel functions in terms of Abraham and ultimately in terms of Adam and then some pointers forward. But it's also to think of the old covenant in a couple of other ways, right? I think when we talk about the old covenant or often just reduce it to the law, right? We often think, and this is a very common way of thinking, we often think of the law in terms of the Ten Commandments, right? So if you talk about the old covenant or the law, we automatically go to Exodus 20 and its, uh, and its version in Deuteronomy, right? So you have the Ten Commandments, yet it's very, very important to think of these covenants as an entire package, a unity. You can divide up the covenant uh, with Israel in terms of there's the Ten Commandments, and then you have another helpful way, of, I mean, a famous way of doing this is you have civil kind of uh, commands that are given to the nation of Israel. You have ceremonial for the sacrificial and the Levitical system. These are all helpful ways, but the Bible presents the covenant as a unitary package, right? It's a whole covenant for the nation of Israel, serving its purpose in the plan of God, pointing beyond itself. So that when Christ comes, that covenant now comes to its end, right? This is what the Judaizer in the New Testament didn't fully grasp, right? Paul's wrestling with the Judaizer in Romans and in particularly Galatians. What was the Judaizer saying? Well, the Judaizer treated the old covenant as what we would say an end in itself. That's why they said, well, we believe in Jesus as Messiah, but Gentiles need to be circumcised. Gentiles need to follow the food laws. They did not realize that that old covenant ultimately served its purpose in God's plan. But now that Christ has come, this is the argument of Galatians 3. Now that faith has come, now that Christ has come, that covenant has reached its goal and end in the dawning of the new covenant, right? So the covenant is viewed as a package. If you flip over to Hebrews chapter 7, I think this is a, now it's a, Hebrews is reflecting upon the Old Testament, but the author makes an observation here that, again, I don't think we often think about when we think about the Old Covenant, its package nature, and so on. Right? Now, in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 11, right? So this is <laughs> taking... Uh, 11 and 12, verse 11 and 12, it's, it's entering into an entire argument that the author is giving. And in this section here, he is showing that Christ is the fulfillment of the priesthood, that he fulfills everything that the Levites uh, foreshadowed. Indeed, he comes outside of their line. He brings a new order, an order of Melchizedek that the Old Testament anticipated. But when he's talking about this, he makes an observation. It's almost like a passing comment. And sometimes biblical authors will do this that just say, wow, that's, I've never thought of that before. That's really, really helpful in putting the Bible together. So he says in chapter 7, verse 11, if perfection could have been attained through Levitical priesthood. So 
there, I think perfection is, you could say, ultimate salvation, right? If ultimate salvation could come through the Levitical priesthood, why was there need for another priest to come, right? So he's now picking up. Even in the Old Testament, there was a promise of another priest to come that was going to eclipse the Levitical priesthood. But before he makes that argument, he draws this parenthesis. It's just a passing comment. He just puts it there. On the basis of it. Now, the it there is the Levitical priesthood. On the basis of the Levitical priesthood, the law, and the law here is referring to the entire covenant. The law was given to the people. Now, that parenthesis is important. It's forcing you to think of the old covenant as an entire relationship, as an entire covenant package. It's also forcing you to think of the entire covenant relationship that Israel has with God is built on something. It's founded in something. In fact, you really can't have this covenant relationship without the foundation. And what's the foundation? The Levitical priesthood. That's interesting, isn't it? The nation of Israel is a kingdom of priests. They're in covenant relationship with God, but the very covenant itself is built on priests, Levites, why is that? Well, I mean, I think if we put Scripture together, the reason is, is because of sin, right? The kingdom of priests who are to live before the presence of God, that's what Adam was supposed to do. That's what we were supposed to do. Given sin, we can't do that anymore. So we need salvation. We need someone who will stand before us. The kingdom of priests needs sacrifice, they need a priest to be their mediator. They need a priest to offer something for them. And of course, you have the entire book of Leviticus. In fact, if you read the book of Exodus, most of the book of Exodus is all centered on the priesthood. <laughs> Moses goes up on the mountain, he enters into covenant relationship in Exodus 24, and then he departs for less than 40 days on the mountain. nation of Israel and violates the covenant. Less than 40 days. That's already a lesson on human sin, right? But they violate the covenant. But as Moses is up on the mountain, what instructions is he receiving? He's receiving instructions for the priesthood. He's receiving instructions for the tabernacle. How does the book of Exodus end? Construction of the tabernacle, the glory of the Lord dwelling in the midst, right? All of that is very instructive. So the covenant itself is a package. It's built on the priesthood. What is this telling us? Well, we should be looking at the covenant as revelatory, right? It's teaching us. It's showing us. What's, what's showing us here? It's showing us this nation can't be a kingdom of priests without sacrifice, right? without substitution. We already saw that with Abraham. Abraham is teaching us that there needs to be a substitute for us. Well, the whole old covenant teaches us that very point. But then look at verse 12 of Hebrews 7. When there is a change of priesthood, there's also going to be a change of law. Very interesting here that the priesthood and the law are so intertwined together that eventually he is going to say when the Levitical priesthood comes to its end, there's a change of priesthood, that means the entire covenant has to change. That covenant then will come to its end. This is why in the New Testament, we are not under the old covenant, right? You're not under the law, and speaking of it in terms of a covenant relationship of Old Testament. We are under a new covenant. We are that to which the old covenant ultimately points, right? And that is very, very crucial. This is why in the New Testament, you think of Matthew 1, Jesus can speak of the law, the covenant, as prophetic. And you say, well, I thought laws were legislative, well, this law is prophetic. The covenant is revealing. It's prophesying to you, right? Romans chapter 3, 21, Paul will say that the righteousness of God does not come from the law. And by law there, he means law covenant. Yet, the very law covenant and the prophets point to it, anticipate it. And that's how this covenant functions. This covenant is part of the revelation of God. It points forward to something greater. It shows Israel how to live. They're that model nation. Through them, the promised Messiah comes. Yet it's also showing them their sin. It's showing them their need. It's showing them what holiness is. It's showing them that they need a sacrifice. All of that is part of the Old Covenant. So this is why in the Old Covenant, there's a massive number of what we call patterns or typological structures that get developed, right? So the covenant isn't just the Ten Commandments. 
There's a whole number of structures. Just think of this, and we'll just run through these quickly. Exodus. <laughs> what establishes that old covenant? Well, God delivers them. Exodus. He takes them out of bondage. And you think of how the preamble to the Ten Commandments begins. I am the Lord who redeemed you out of Egypt. Therefore, have no other gods before me. Right? The Exodus becomes the great deliverance of the nation. But it's very, very important to see in this context that Exodus didn't necessarily guarantee that everyone in that covenant received salvation. Many of that first generation, in fact, most of the first generation died in the wilderness. Right? That redemption was God's deliverance, but it became then a pattern of something far greater. We'll see in the after this afternoon with the prophets. The prophets think of this. The prophets, when they want to think of what God is going to do in the future, they go back to the Exodus. But when they go back to the Exodus, they don't just say, God will do another deliverance uh, out of political powers. No, 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 no. They ramp it up because ultimately the problem of sin is there. They will say what God needs to do is not just get you out of Egypt or get you out of some kind of political oppression. He needs to get you out of sin. And, of course, that's the message of Isaiah 11, and that's the message of Ezekiel and Daniel and so on. And, of course, that's the message of the suffering servant. The whole book of Exodus from chapter 38 through 55 is structured in terms of God's deliverance after Babylon, of a political deliverance under Cyrus, but that's not enough. Ultimately, there's going to have to come the deliverance of the servant of the Lord who will die for you who will take you out of sin, who will ultimately bring the forgiveness of sins and the new covenant promise of forgiveness and justification that the old covenant could only foreshadow. So the Exodus becomes picked up later. Or Passover. The Exodus is intimately tied to the Passover itself, isn't it? Those 10 plagues, right? We see God's power. We see God's grace. We see God's judgment. But the Passover is a very unique plague, right? All the other nine plagues are upon the nation of Egypt alone. Darkness and locusts and all these, the, the Nile River. But the tenth plague is built, is, is tied to both Israel and Egypt. If the blood of the lamb is not put on the doorposts of the Israelites, they'll lose their firstborn son as well. Well, already you're seeing in the Passover tied to the Exodus you're seeing, all right, salvation sense of this, a substitution sense of this. It's already there in Genesis 22. It gets picked up in the Passover. It gets then unfolded in the Levitical sacrificial system. Interestingly enough, the Levites stood on behalf of the firstborn of Israel. Right? All of that connects. And of course, as you work through the Old Testament, it'll become very clear you need more than just a Levite. You need more than just a ram. You need ultimately the Son of God to take your sin. Right? You also have Moses. Now, we've tied this talk here to Moses and says about the nation of Israel, but Moses, sometimes the Old Covenant is called the Mosaic Covenant because of the unique role that Moses plays. Right? He is like, in some sense, what Adam was. Right? Adam, we said, was a kind of early prophet, priest, and king. Well, Moses is a great deliverer. Right? He is a kind of king before the kings. Right? He takes the nation out. Uh, he is priestly. He comes from the Levitical line. You can't read the book of Leviticus. The entire establishment of the Levitical system is dependent upon Moses inaugurating it. Right? Moses gets the whole thing going. Right? And then, of course, he uniquely is the great prophet. Right? In fact, in Deuteronomy 18, there's a whole prophecy that God, Moses says, God says to the nation of Israel, he says, you know, Moses isn't going to get into the promised land. Uh, when you get there under Joshua, God will raise up for you a prophet like Moses. And that becomes a whole pattern of prophecy that ultimately reaches its culmination in the Lord Jesus. Acts 3 quotes this very passage, Peter. And says, this is the great prophet to come. Hebrews 1 says the same thing as well. And in the Old Covenant as well, you have it linking itself back to uh, ultimately Abraham and Adam, but ultimately it's looking forward as well. Right? Genesis 17, verse 6. 
talks about from Abraham will come kings. And then Trent mentioned Genesis 49. But you also have this in the Old Covenant as well. Moses says, when you go into the land, right, and yeah, God will raise up a prophet, but he's also going to raise up a king. Deuteronomy 17. And this is what the king is supposed to be like. And this is what the king is supposed to do. There's already the anticipation back to Abraham, ultimately back to Adam, that there's coming a king. In fact, the storyline from Joshua to Judges emphasizes the king even before the king. Right? You think of Judges. What's that common refrain in Judges? You have these Judges that when they're good, the nation of Israel is okay. When they're bad, crashes. And what does the book of Judges say? The, 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 the writer of it makes that sort of parenthetical insertion always, which tells you what you should, are to pay attention to. Israel did what was right in their own eyes because there was no king. <laughs> so ultimately, the old covenant anticipates the coming of the king. It's tied to Abraham. It's tied all the way back to Adam. But as the storyline moves forward, it's going to move forward to David. We need a king. We need one who will bring rule. We need one who's the seed of the woman. We need one who will put all things under his feet. I mean, to fulfill Psalm 8 and so on. And the old covenant already anticipates that. In fact, that old pagan prophet Balaam in Numbers 23, even before there's kings, is already prophesying that the king of Israel is going to rule the world. And so you already have anticipation of this. Or think of the book of Ruth. What's the book of Ruth about? Well, my wife loves Hallmarks. She makes me watch Hallmarks every Christmas with all these movies. <laughs> so the book of Ruth can be looked at as uh, a romance novel. Yes, 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 yes. But what's going on here? Right? Well, first, Gentile woman. Right? Already anticipation of the Abrahamic promise, the nations. She comes under Israel. She meets Boaz. That's a wonderful romance. But ultimately, what's that book leading you to? David. The genealogy. The coming of the king. And so on. So the storyline is moving. And the old covenant isn't, again, just, here's some commandments. Here's Israel. It's revelatory. It's prophetic. It's anticipating something more. And, of course, that's seen uniquely in the Levitical system that I made mention of already as well. Foundational to that old covenant to this kingdom of priests, they need a priest. And of course, that is precisely what God has said from Genesis 3 on. I'm going to have to provide forgiveness of sins. I'm going to have to do something. I'm going to have to provide ultimately one who will be the fulfillment of all those priests. And of course, as this works out in the Old Testament, Psalm 110, and as it comes in the New Testament, the book of Hebrews unfolds all of this for us. Right? So here's the role of the Old Covenant. Moses, as wonderful as he is, never gets into the Promised Land. That's instructive too, isn't it? Moses is a unique figure, mediator of the covenant, gets everything going all the way from uh, the inauguration of the covenant to the establishment of the priesthood. But what happens with Moses? He ends up dead and never even gets to the Promised Land. That's part of the story. Why is it part of the story? Because there is no human covenant partner so far that obeys fully. Moses doesn't do it. And you go all the way back. The nation of Israel won't do it. That anticipates then the looking for an obedient one to come. And that obedient one to come will ultimately come as you put these covenants together by God's own provision. Because the human race won't produce it by itself. It's going to have to come from the outside. It'll come from the human race, yes. But it will also be the Son of God from eternity who now takes up residence with us. And there's where we'll see this afternoon the virgin conception. The virgin conception is set in the context of here comes finally the first man of the new creation who will obey for us. But he's not just merely a man. He's ultimately God himself, right? Now, that's how the Old Covenant, in a whole number of ways, moves things forward. It's not just there. <laughs> what do we do with this thing? It's revelatory. It's prophetic. It's guiding the nation. It's showing them their sin. It's doing a whole host of things. But for us, it's pointing beyond itself. Moses points to a greater Moses. Israel points as a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, to ultimately God's son, who is the true Israel, who will then bring a people 
who will be restored to be a kingdom of priests, unlike Israel was, unlike Adam and the human race was. Through Israel, God's promises will be realized, yet there's far more to come. Even the whole land theme that was picked up with Abraham, right, is that land points to something greater, right? That's how this works. And what it's teaching us so far in the story is we need someone greater. We need God to act in sovereign initiative and grace to save. But we need him to provide one who's the perfect covenant keeper, right? And we'll begin to see that with David is starting to hint to that. But even then, it never, never comes until the coming of the Lord Jesus. God has kept his promises from Genesis 3:15 on. The wonderful, glorious thing about the triune God is that he is a promise maker. But you know, we make a lot of promises and don't keep them, but even more so, God is a promise keeper. Right? And part of looking at the whole message of Scripture, Christ from beginning to end, is to renew our confidence not only in how the Bible fits together and to teach us and to show us the glory of Christ and so on, but it's to lead us to faith. It's to lead us to trust. It's to lead us to say, no matter what comes our way, God can be trusted, right? We live between the first and second coming of Christ. We, have, we long for his appearing. We know more than even Old Testament saints knew. Yet we still need to be assured of the promises of God and the faithfulness of God and the grace of God. That's how we then live our Christian lives day by day in this still tough fallen world. So we then look to God's promises, we see how they're fulfilled, and we see even in a greater way how they are all yes and amen in Christ. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the old covenant. Thank you for Moses. Thank you for even the bad example of Israel. We don't want to wish any sin upon us, but it does teach us. It teaches us of our own human sin and need. It teaches us that you are the only one who can save. You are the only one who can provide. You will do so from the human race. We can already begin to see how that is going to come in Jesus Christ, our Lord, your own dear Son. Yet we are amazed of your promises. We are amazed of your grace. We realize that you can save and only alone we cannot save ourselves. Help us to be reminded even of these great truths this morning that we will renew our confidence, that we will look unto you, the triune God, in the face of Christ Jesus our Lord and run the races before us, that you give us strength for the journey because we know that we have entrusted ourselves to the covenant God who makes promises, who keeps them, that are sure in our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? Nothing can fail. All of your promises are sure. Help us to be reminded of that and live in light of that, even today and all the days of our life, as we long for the coming of the Lord Jesus. And it's in his name that we ask these things. Amen.